Thank you very much, Martin, for talking to me today about your book, Once Upon an Algorithm, How Stories Explain Computing. I'm wondering maybe if you could say a little bit about the impetus for this book and why you decided to take this idea and put it together in such detail as you have here, using obviously computer algorithms and computer science, but also in a language that is very accessible to people who are familiar with stories like Hansel and Gretel and similar things like that. Why did you decide that this was a project that you wanted to take on? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a big fan of, of um, popular science books, and there are many books out there that explain, for example, evolution or uh, quantum physics, <clears throat> psychology, uh, economics, and so on and so forth. But there's not, there are not so many books uh, on computer science available. And I thought, well, that should change because computing um, is, is growing every day in, in its impact on our uh, lives. And so people should have a chance to understand what computer science is about, what computing is about, what an algorithm is. And um, that was the original motivation. So I wanted to write a popular science book about computer science. The, uh, the question how the stories came in, um, that's, that's um, probably um, related to the fact that um, when, when I go to work every day, I, I take the bus and my bus ride is about seven minutes long. And so with my bus buddies, we often talk about all kinds of stuff. But whenever they, when, whenever they ask me about my, my work or, or what classes I am teaching, I always try to, to start from the bottom up. Like, like I explain computing or computer science in the classroom, and the time is never enough. And um, it, it was really hard to get across what, what I and my students are working about, uh, on and, and what, what the particular topics are about. And so I had to find some, some metaphors to, to get this across uh, more easily. And at some point in time, I had the idea of just using stories or elements of stories to doing that. And yeah, those, those, these, these two things came together. And all well, that was when the idea for this book was created. And then I looked for more stories to cover um, a, a broad range of computer science. Yeah, that's, that's how this came about. What did you start with, if, uh, if I can get a sense of how you worked on the book? Did you think about stories and then how an algorithm would fit that? Or did you think about an algorithm that you wanted to talk about and then how maybe a story would work? How did you put these things together? The original goal was to explain several aspects of computer science. Uh, I was first asking myself, well, what does a layperson have to know about computer science um, in order, well, to get a good impression of the field. Algorithms uh, are certainly a, a central topic in, in computing, but it's not all. There, there's also this, the, the second part of the book is concerned with languages and language concepts. Mm -hmm. And so I first created a, basically a map or, or, or table of contents, of, of concepts, basically, that everybody had to, or that I thought everybody should at least know a little bit about. And then I started to looking for stories that would um, be fitting and, and that could be used to explain those those ideas. The first one was actually Hansel and Gretel. That example was really a, a very good one for explaining algorithms and many, many subtle aspects of algorithms that even somebody who has a very rough idea of what an algorithm is probably doesn't think about. The notion of runtime, the notion of termination, the question of representation the question of how it is actually possible to solve problems using algorithms. So all these things uh, could very well ex be explained with hands-on Gretel. But then, yeah, finding examples for other um, concepts, that really took some time to, to find um, stories that were fitting and broad enough in scope to explain the concepts, but also well enough known so that uh, well, yeah, people would could connect to it. And it seems like you had a number of other possibilities. I mean, in the chapters... You often mention other stories that fit similar patterns. What made these ones stick out? I mean, so generally speaking, for anyone who hasn't read the book, right, you start with uh, Hansel and Gretel, you have Sherlock Holmes, Indiana Jones, uh, Groundhog Day, Back to the Future, Harry Potter, but you also mention dozens of other books. How did you pick these ones? So when you, when you go look into the details, then sometimes um, a certain aspect fits very well with one story or, or, or one um, movie or, or whatever it is. But then another aspect really is, is lacking. And so I had to really comb through all these different possibilities and find uh, those stories that well offered the most. And I also, the, the book tries to use one story at least for two chapters, for uh, at least covering two different aspects. And Yana Jones is used for three chapters. Mm -hmm. 
So to to get this breadth, I didn't want to want to have one story for each individual aspect. Then it would be would have been too much. And I want to use one story as much as possible for illustrating certain ideas. And so that led to this filtering process. And um, well, in, in in some cases, I went back and forth between two or three different stories, and finally settled on one. And it's it, uh, there's no algorithm to do this. This <laughs> is really. Uh, a, a judgment call and um yeah it, it took some time to to actually arrive at this was there anything that you found surprising as you were trying to decide how to come up with the best metaphor or allegory for the computer technologies that you're talking about i'm curious if you thought a story would work and then you realized it didn't or if you thought a technique for comparing would work and then there were some glitches what if anything surprised you about that process yeah, one example is maybe the, um, the the first two chapters about language. And I first thought, oh, language, that is easy. I'll take Alice in Wonderland or, or Through the Looking Glass, which are well-known stories. And, and language plays a prominent role in, in those stories. And I thought, well, yeah, I can use those those stories very, um, very well. But then I noticed that first of all, the, the, the way language is used is in, in a very specific way. It's It's on the word by word level and not so much on a sentence level and so that was one thing that was yeah what made me stumble and the other thing is that if you use english to explain language then um, you're too close uh, to the um, to the subject matter so uh, i needed to i needed a, a domain that is slightly removed where where um, you, you're not confused uh, wh- whether you're talking about language itself or um, confuse the example with the concept being explained and using English to do that. Well, this was just too hard. I mean, you can see this in, in one of the earlier chapters when I talk about representations, the fact that certain names stand for something else. And I have to use quotation marks. And this is already very technical. And this would have been a nightmare to do in the chapter on languages. And so that's when I finally decided not to use uh, Alice in Wonderland uh, and uh, actually use uh, a music piece to explain language. And that allowed me to keep the distance between the, the domain I use for explaining the concept and the concept itself. Because it's, it's not so obvious at first that, you, that, that a music piece is a sentence in a language, but it is. And once you, once you see the, the relationships, well, then... Then I think this works very well uh, as an explanation. So that that was a a surprise, maybe, and yeah, it, it took some time to realize that um, the obvious, the low, lowest low hanging fruit in this case was not really the, the the sweetest fruit. No, that was interesting. I thought that it worked really well with the notes and the and the way that you talk about music as a language. Mm-hmm. I think the one of the things that interested me because uh, I mean the podcast itself that I've been doing for almost a year now is really about cultural studies and philosophy, which is not really where I would say your book fits. Mm-hmm. Not not explicitly, mm-hmm. but it does relate to a lot of the ideas that people are talking about in cultural studies and philosophy, which is really the question of how computers and humanity and, and society fit together and in what ways they do and in what ways they don't. So just to start with that conversation... Why do you think it's important that people understand how computers work? Especially, as you said, this is a, a sort of popular science book, and so it's not directed at the computer engineers necessarily, but at a broader audience. Why is it important for a broader audience to understand these concepts? Yeah, so, well, it's, it's, first of all, it's obvious that computing affects more and more areas of our lives. And uh, I mean, most of us actually use computers in some form or another. I mean, cell phones are computers, and many people use laptops or uh, or desktop computers at work or at school or at home. From that perspective alone, it's 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 interesting and instructive to have a little bit of knowledge of, uh, about what you're working with. But then, even if you don't use computers actively, you're still affected by computation. So you, I mean, traffic control when you're when you're at a doctor's office, all these uh, devices are, or many of these devices are computer controlled. And or, or think about self-driving cars. Now we have uh, reports of of this of these accidents that happen. Now all of a sudden we have to think about what, what it means to give control, uh, a very important control of our lives to computers. But then even if you go further, even if you take away all all electronic machinery, then still computing is a huge part of our lives. Um, if you consider m- many things that you do on an everyday basis, they are very algorithmic. If you 
get up in the morning and, and, and dress, you're kind of executing an algorithm. Or if you make breakfast, or if you commute to work, uh, algorithms are with you every every step of the of the way. And so it's just a good idea to understand what you're doing and and what your what your life uh, consists of. And then on a, on a on a broader level, it's um, it's not really surprising that computing gets um, more and more importance and is taking over uh, more and more of our lives because ultimately an algorithm is just a systematic way of solving a particular problem, a problem that can reappear, like making breakfast. And so if you if you think about this, we as humans or, or as, as any species is constantly confronted with uh, problems and we have to do problem solving. And so having invented uh, uh, or discovered a way of systematic problem solving, well, it's no wonder that we use this uh, more and more and more. And now since we can automate it, that this will be done more and more by machines. And so that's why uh, computing is really a part of, of everybody's lives uh, without even knowing it. And so it's, it's probably a good idea to know a little bit about it. That, that is kind of the, the deeper reason, I think. Well, and of course, that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, one phrase that's always captured my attention was, uh, I think, it, Douglas Roshkoff. I don't know if you've heard of this uh, book, but he, he has one called Program or Be Programmed, which is really an interesting concept to me of uh, maybe embodying some of the ideas that people are both worried about, but also excited about, because you have, but effectively, you have these two groups, yeah. right? You have programmers and people who understand programming, and then you have those who are at its mercy almost. Would you say that you sort of share this idea of a, a two-sided society where one side is able to understand and program and others aren't? Or do you see it in a different way? How do you see the relation of computer programmers to the rest of society? Well, when we're talking about programming, this, this can mean different things. Of course, when you think about programming a computer, learning a, knowing a programming language, yeah, those programmers in this sense they um they are of course different from the vast majority of people who probably do not know how to program a computer although people may actually underestimate their ability and actually their uh, activity in terms of programming so uh, whenever i talk to people um about this i ask them whether they have ever used an excel spreadsheet and most people have and uh well whenever you're putting a formula into an excel spreadsheet then you are actually programming and you are a programmer it's a very simple programming language but nevertheless you are creating a program you're creating an artifact that well if you put in different numbers in in the cells that are referenced by the formula well then this program is re-executed and computes new values so i think there people are more programmers uh, or, or are programmers to a larger degree than they realize even in this narrow sense of programming a computer but then of course you are you are right uh, professionals they have um, a lot of impact in in what they do but i think this is this is true with with any scientific or engineering discipline people who build cars or build uh, airplanes they have also a lot of impact on all of society and people who use these these devices so i i don't maybe maybe computing is right now the a very important and very powerful force in in this respect but i don't think it's it's principally different from other areas of science that are then used by engineers to create technology that impacts society and i well actually the purpose of writing popular science books is to uh, not embrace, but actually overcome this dichotomy mm-hmm. uh, that that we divide society into those that are programmers and those that are programmed this uh um i think nobody should consider themselves as being manipulated in this way and being informed um is the first step as uh, resisting such a scenario well what you're doing i guess is on in a very simplified version using literature popular culture to an extent to explain computer programming it made me think of a a different book called distant reading by franco moretti who kind of does the opposite and tries to explain literature by using computer programs so so he'll put in a bunch of books right and find out kind of the scenarios that keep coming up or the the mm-hmm. patterns that that arise that a, a normal reader would never be able to figure out because of the computational power involved um but a lot of people sort of worry or resist or, or again, back, coming back to this dichotomy that computers 
shouldn't be infringing on literature or the humanities or the arts because those are separate spheres. I'm wondering how you feel about that and whether there is a sort of line where this stops becoming a realm of computer science or, or even generally speaking, just algorithms, and it becomes something else, something art. Or do you think that the two shouldn't be divided in any way? Um, how do you feel about that relationship that some people have embraced and some people have tried to put up markers? Yeah, so I actually talk a, a little bit about this uh, in a similar way in, in the last chapter of the book, which is about abstraction. And I use actually stories as an example for which you can use abstraction. So you can see certain patterns reoccurring in stories and mm -hmm. you can capture these, these patterns using abstractions, using functions or procedures. And then by filling in values for parameters, uh, you can instantiate these, these, these patterns, these commonalities that you have identified to uh, the different examples. So that is not necessarily, well, that is neither a good or a bad thing. That is just an observation. You can just observe that certain characters or certain storylines appear over and over and over again. There's this book, or there's actually several books on, on these seven basic storylines that uh, have been identified since antiquity. And, uh, well, that's really a, just, just um, a reflection of this fact that we can and we do see patterns in, in, in everything. And we use, this, this, we use the notion of abstraction to just organize and understand the world. And so we, we, we do compare different instances of in arts, in literature, and we cannot help uh, doing it. And so um, this doesn't mean, oh, that we now have to write programs that create stories, although some people have done that. And mm -hmm. sometimes maybe this works, sometimes it doesn't. And this doesn't take away from or, or doesn't diminish human creativity. It's just, uh, I, I would say it's just, first of all, an observation that, that you can apply abstraction, which is actually maybe the central concept of computing. So most people would know, know the word algorithm and they know computing or computation. But if, if you had to ask me what the central notion of computing is or computer science is, it's actually abstraction. It is uh, widely applicable. And I explained this in the, in the book in the last chapter. You can, you can certainly apply it to literature and other forms of art. I don't think artists or, or, or writers, poets should be threatened by this in, in any way. And in the same way, that, that a, a, a painter shouldn't be threatened by the fact that you can analyze the, the paint and, and determine what kind of molecules it's, it's made of. And, or, or that if, if, if a painter draw or, or, or an artist draws a certain or creates a certain drawing and you can identify certain relationships mathematically, well, that is not a threat to the art, I think. It's just a, a different way of, of looking at it and understanding it. Do you think that, I mean, maybe part of the issue in people who resist the, I guess, idea of computers and computing encroaching on new territories is that it could at some point become more creative. I mean, in terms of artificial intelligence and in terms of its ability to, to go beyond what we have now, do you see computing as a creative endeavor? And, and if so, how? Yeah, so this, this, this whole discussion on AI and how powerful AI and then also how threatening AI can be so there's, there's several things uh, you can say about this. On the one hand, uh, AI is very powerful in specific, in specific areas and um, very useful too. It can also be, it can also have harmful effects, but no question about it. And that is true uh, of computing and uh, computer science as it is for any technology. As far as human creativity being threatened by artificial intelligence creativity, I, I don't know um, how. How threatened we should be feeling about this there are algorithms that um, you can um, feed music into and they create music that sounds similar but uh, in, in many of these instances yeah they can replicate certain musical musical styles and uh, and the same is true for for um, visual arts i think but well, and maybe by by combining certain elements they can also create something new but i have not been I, have, I must say I haven't studied this in detail, though, but um, I'm, I'm not so sure that that uh, human creativity will be overtaken anytime soon by AI in this regard. There's something to, to the way that we sometimes make connections that are just that happen just by, by chance, by accident, that, that, that algorithmic uh, systems do not do and cannot do at the time at this time. 
So I, I'm personally not that worried by that. Yeah, that would be that would be my my take on it. Clearly, the creative potential for programmers to come up with new and really insightful and creative ways of interpreting and problem solving and these kinds of things, which we then feed into programs. I guess where we're we're not there now clearly, but do you see a potential for a program to, to some extent, motivate itself? In other words, up until this point, we have people who are trying to solve problems, and then they put in uh, a certain parameters so that the problem can be solved. And that's, I think, where some of the debate, I, at least uh, that I've been reading about, exists, is whether or not you'll ever really be able to get a computer to take on that, or will computers always be... And by computers, of course, you highlight in your book that we are computers in the sense that we compute. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, I'm, I'm talking about digital computers, general computing machines. Do you see that jump being made in the future, possibly, or with the developments we have, or will it always be a sort of translation program, an abstraction program? When you talk to AI researchers, they are way more skeptical about the dangers of AI that uh, some prominent figures, Elon Musk and um, the late Stephen Hawkins, have made, because mm -hmm. the areas in which AI is very powerful right now are very, very narrow slices of, uh, of human activity, human endeavors. And a general artificial intelligence, we are, we are far away from this at this point. And there's also this, this idea that, oh, intelligence is this open-ended, is, is something that exists on an open-ended spectrum and that, is, uh, that is, has no limits. But this is not really clear that this is the case. I mean, if you look at other uh, natural phenomena like temperature, right, there's an, uh, a lowest temperature that we have. Or speed, there's a light speed is the fastest speed there is. So maybe there's a limit on intelligence as well. So this idea that intelligence is open-ended and there could be this explosion that uh, we get intelligence that we can't even imagine, well, it is not clear that this even exists. So that's the first thing. The second thing is then people attribute to AI certain certain goals and that that AI systems all of a sudden develop their own goals and that they completely ignore humans and uh, the needs of humans and human goals that are sometimes called the alignment problem. Mm -hmm. But it is not really clear to me how AI systems actually ac acquire these, would acquire these goals. I mean, we are ultimately um, motivated by evolution, right? We have our needs are uh, a result of us having been evolved over over millions of years and having uh, lived in the physical environment that we are living in, AI systems do not have that. And so it's not really clear that they would develop goals that are in conflict with, with those of humans and that the alignment problem is really such a hard problem as it was always made to be. And then also that uh, that we all of a sudden lose control over over AI systems and that uh, we wouldn't test AI systems to the point um, that we can be sure that they behave, behave in, a, in a rational way. So I think these fears are, are overblown. And actually talking to AI researchers, I think uh, they, they do not see this danger. So this, this is kind of uh, AI and, and, and computing taking over. And you're right, humans are computers in a certain sense. But it's not, not everything we do is computing. There are certain aspects of our lives that are algorithmic, that follow a certain plan. But then there are also other areas that aren't. I mean, if you listen to music, this is not really an algorithmic process, right? This is, this is something else. And, um, and also, we should also uh, remember that algorithms and, and computing has limitations. Uh, I'll talk about this also in the book. There are certain things, certain problems that cannot be solved by an algorithm. Actually, there is um, a huge number of problems that cannot be solved algorithmically. Mm -hmm. And uh, then there's also the problem that even though certain problems have algorithms as solutions, they are just um, too inefficient. These, these algorithms that we know about today are too inefficient to solve these problems. So to believe that algorithms computing is taking over the world and, and enslaving humanity, I, I don't share those fears. I guess that brings me to my next question, which is about what problems you think algorithms or computing are best suited to solve today. Because, of course, we've seen where they've come in tremendous speeds over the last few decades, uh, particularly in certain branches like uh, science, engineering, medicine. 
What kinds of problems are you hoping that computers will be able to better tackle over the next, say, few, few years, few decades? What do you hope to see develop in terms of pe- the way people solve problems and the, what problems we, uh, we tackle? Yeah, well, now you're asking me to be a, a prophet. And <laughs> well, what would you hope, I would say? <laughs> not, what, not what do you predict, but what avenues do you see a lot of potential? Well, as, a, as somebody who has written a lot of programs and made a lot of mistakes in doing that, I would, be, I would start very humbly and, and uh, say, well, it would be great if we could write software today that actually works and doesn't <laughs> crash, at, crash as often as it does. So, um, and also as a researcher in computer science, I really care a lot about developing software that is reliable and that does not do more harm than good. There's, there's many stories in, in which software was employed that had uh, really hazardous um, effects on, on, on human lives and, and on, on property. And that would be my first hope, that we get to the point where we can develop software that is more reliable, that we can, more, that we can trust more before we apply it into, uh, on, on more and more and more and more areas. But then, of course, many things that are easy to make mistakes with, if you can um, program this and you know that the program is reliable, well, then you can um, avoid mistakes. Think of anything. I mean, drive, self-driving cars is maybe a good example. This will come sooner or later. But as we have seen, this is this is not a completely solved problem yet because mm-hmm. the, the question of, of of safety, of course, is uh, is one that that has to be solved. But then, on the other hand, though, the prospect of avoiding stupid driver errors, like checking your cell phone and then crashing into somebody else or or killing a pedestrian, well, thousands of lives can be saved by avoiding this technology. Then, of course, is uh, I mean. Since we're talking about self-driving to cars, you, you get these, these philosophical problems that all of a sudden be, uh, become relevant again, the, the so-called trolley problems that you certainly know about. Mm-hmm. And so what does a car do if it's faced with the problem of either, well, killing one person on the street or three children on the sidewalk? Or So how, how do we make these, these ethical decisions? And then in particular, if the decision is between uh, or the choice is between killing three pedestrians or killing the driver. I, I think people have, have studied this and have asked people about this. And most people say, oh, yeah, um, the car should actually kill the driver in that instance and not the three pedestrians. But then uh, if they, if people, when, when people were asked, well, would you buy such a car? Well, everybody said, no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. um, this, is, uh, this is, of course, um, a difficult problem. It's a philosophical problem. Actually, this is a problem I think that cannot really very well be solved using a computer itself, right? This is something that humans have to discuss and uh, ultimately decide on. Um, do you, do you want to have um, culturally dependent ethics in, in every car? The car, depending on where you drive it, has, has different ethical rules of how to behave in these situations. But then there are people who say, well, these are all great topics for discussion, for seminars. But in reality, this will, will be really, really rare. And maybe it's best to really throw a coin, flip a coin, uh, because uh, well, you, this will occur so infrequently that it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things in, in light of how many other thousands of lives can be saved by um, self-driving cars. Mm-hmm. Well, that raises a really interesting point to me, which is, what do you think the relationship should be among, let's say, just for instance, computer programmers and philosophers? So they tend to be really different, like almost silos at generally in universities in terms of what they're reading, in terms of what they're, who they're talking to, who they're talking about. But as you said, there are there are algorithmic problems like getting from point A to point B safely and uh, and securely. But then there are philosophical problems like uh, at whose life is worth more if you had to choose in a in a situation like that. What do you think uh, the relationship should be between philosophers and people doing that kind of ethical process, and the engineers and people doing the the practical processes of making these self driving cars, for instance? How should they how should they relate in either at schools or in the workplace or what have you? Well, there's there's, there's different um, attitudes you can have towards this. I mean, there's always this idea of the responsible and ethical scientist uh, who um, can 
really judge all the all the implications that uh, whatever technology they're working on has on society. But that's of course very hard to do. And um, mm-hmm. in in the same way, then if if you are an engineer you, and you're building an MRI machine and you know all about magnetics and and, and electronics, but you do not know you don't know much about medicine. Well, you probably have to talk to physicians who tell you what is important to, to visualize and, 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 and trust their judgment on the specifics of the domain that you are about to, to implement. And I think the same is probably true in, in many areas. Now, when we're talking about um, ethics and morality, well, everybody is kind of involved. And we don't want to hand it over to the philosophers to, to tell us what the right thing to do is. So I think actually in, in this particular case, um, this is a, this is a conversation that all of society has to en- engage in, right? So we don't want to turn this over to a few philosopher professors in um, in the university. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there has to be a consensus, and then, well, whatever the consensus is, that has to be implemented reliably. So the, I don't think this is the the responsibility of the computer scientist in this case. I think this is a responsibility that um, society has to take, and, and that actually brings me back to the point I made at the beginning. That is why. People should know basics of computing, of what an algorithm is, what computers can and cannot do, so that they can, in an informed way, talk about this and form opinions and, and then uh, make decisions. Yeah. And then there's one more thing I want to say. You said, well, philosophers and computer scientists um, don't have much to do with one another. Well, there is one area that is actually an, uh, an area of overlap, which is philosophy of language, the, the work of uh, Gottlieb. Frege, for example, mm-hmm. is very relevant to computer science, as some of the later philosophers, Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell, for example, uh, with Russell's paradox, he was the inventor of types. It's, it's a very important concept in, in, in computing. So there is some overlap between philosophy and computer science. But that's just a side note. Yeah, no, no and that's a great point, is that uh, there is, I think, much more in common, especially with people who are taking a broad view of these of these two disciplines, and there's a lot of overlap, but I don't think there's a lot of overlap in terms of the businesses that are making the products and the universities that are writing philosophical books and stuff like that. Is there a way that you think it should be or it could be improved, not even just these two groups, but in general, the people talking about ethical considerations and philosophical considerations and issues of what it means to be human and what it means to make uh, decisions well and live a good life compared to uh, computer programming courses, departments, that kind of thing. Is there an opportunity, you think, for more integration, or how would you see it working better? So I don't really have um, a solution to this to this problem or to this tension. I mean, in many universities, students, undergraduate students at, at our university at least, they take a class uh, in, in ethics, and um, there's always this notion of the responsible engineer. And so this is, this is being tried to make engineers aware of the responsibility they have for society. Um, but you can't turn engineers into philosophers. And you probably can't turn philosophers into engineers. So I think the best way to forward is to raise knowledge on, on both sides, to make people who, who, who care about um, ethics, morality, Make, a, make them aware and, and know the basics of technology so that they can um, talk about it in an informed way and not be uh, distracted by horror stories on the one hand or utopian visions on the other hand, but have a realistic view of technology and what it can do. And on the other hand, yes, have the engineers be uh, um, informed about what the issues are in, in terms of ethics and morality and then have them talk with one another. I mean, that's Basically, um, the only 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 thing I can see we can do, and then actually on a, on a broad societal level, I think the same thing has to happen as well. That people are mm-hmm. aware of, uh, of of both sides, some some basic understanding of science uh, and scientific concepts, and what is possible and what is not, and then also, well, what do we want as a society? What do we think are um, our our goals? What do we value and what do we want to achieve? And then try to bring these two together. And ultimately, I think if you, if you don't have people on board, uh, then well, this, this won't work at all. Mm-hmm. 
And so if you had a platform to speak to uh, people who may not understand computing as well as, as you would want, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking a lot, of, a lot of people who don't know very much at all about the technologies themselves are informed or at least have images in their minds from some of the science fiction that you reference in your book. And from other, you know, sort of horror scenarios that in a future reality, people will all, you know, have a Terminator situation or something mm-hmm. like that. What would you hope that they would get or that they would learn out of the misconceptions that you've heard? I'm sure you've heard a lot of misconceptions yeah. about the technologies over time. What are some that you would, you would love to correct or at least inform people about who aren't very familiar with the actual technologies? I think in, in every science, a, a hallmark of every scientific discipline is to understand its limitation. I mean, in physics, you have um, fundamental limitations that um, characterize the field and, and the knowledge about the field. And uh, we have this in computing as well. There are limitations of, uh, of computing. And just understanding that, uh, there's this so-called halting problem. If you have an algorithm and you want to decide, you want to look at it and decide whether or not it terminates, whether it will not run into an endless loop. That is an interesting problem. I mean, you want, you would really love to know this, but it turns out you cannot write a program that looks at an arbitrary other program and decide whether or not it terminates. That's a very simple, seemingly simple problem, but this cannot be solved through a computer. This, is, this goes back to Alan Turing, the, this, this, the unsolvability of this halting problem. And uh, to many people, this is surprising that seemingly simple problems like this cannot be solved by an algorithm. Now, if you know this, then you get, and you know some, some other limitations, you get a more realistic picture of what computers and algorithms can do and what they cannot do. And that, I think, gives you a, a, a more sober and realistic view of reality. And uh, that takes, that lets you view horror stories and, and, and movies more as entertainment and not be freaked out by it, I think. I'm just thinking at the same time, there's work being done or that has been done, like Thomas Kuhn, for example, Mm -hmm. on uh, paradigm shifting, Mm -hmm. and there's sort of incredible ways in which people have thought one thing, and then it turns out that we're wrong. I mean, a a lot of human societies and cultures have been wrong about things that they were very sure about. Mm -hmm. To sort of play devil's advocate, how can we be confident that there are certain limitations when we keep seeing or it seems that we're seeing limitations broken, what, what can help us be sure of or at least mm-hmm. be, be conscious of these more sober takes on technologies when it seems that rules are being broken, even in physics, for example? Right. So while this, the revolutions in, in science and, and in paradigm shifts, while they uh, do appear, well, it's also true that a lot of uh, what science has produced in the past is still valid today. I mean, you could say that Einstein's uh, relativity theory, well, invalidated Newton's theory, but yeah. well, Newton's theory is still valid for, for for most of what we are dealing with, right? So, uh, and so you have this with with many many of these revolutions. So, quantum mechanics, yes, at the fundamental level, um, reality is is probabilistic or behaves in this uh, probabilistic way. But then, at, at our macro level, we are dealing with we don't really have to worry about this. So um, that, that's the first thing I would say. And then there are, there are empirical facts, and then there are mathematical facts. And so the, the limitations I talked about, uh, in particular the unsolvability of the halting problem, or um, Gödel's incompleteness theorem, for example, these are mathematical facts. And I don't think we will see a revolution that uh, upends and creates a completely different form of mathematics that uh, has a different form of logic that would be required in order to invalidate those facts. So I think those limitations we can be, be very sure of. There is the, 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 the one open, there's, a, there's an important open question in computer science that um, actually can have a huge impact. And that is the question of, it's, it's the so-called P equals NP problem. So there are certain, certain problems for which algorithms are known right now that uh, have exponential runtime. Exponential runtime is really, really bad. And basically, it means that you can't solve these problems in a precise way because the, the programs would just take too much time. Mm-hmm. Now, some of these results depend on an assumption that the, a certain class of problems cannot be solved with algorithms that have non-exponential time. Now, this assumption could be wrong. It is, this is an open problem for many years, and computer scientists, most of computer scientists believe today that um, P is not equals NP, which means these exponential algorithms, well, uh, this is the best we can, 
we can do. But should that turn out to be false and should we uh, actually show that this assumption is incorrect? Well, then all of a sudden we can we can solve these very difficult problems uh, efficiently. And that has, for example, immediate implication for um, the safety of transactions on the Internet. Whenever you have a safe connection to your bank account, when this lock in your browser snaps, then, well, it's, it's the, the encryption that is being used depends on the fact that it's very hard to take a, a huge number and compute its prime factors to do prime factorization. And if all of a sudden we, uh, we can do prime factorization uh, very fast, well, that means all these secure connections would not be possible anymore. That would be a, a huge problem for for uh, the whole economy, and so yeah, this can happen, of course. But there are certain and and the other the other solution to this problem or the other disruption that could occur is if quantum computers uh, were to materialize. With qu- quantum computing, you could also solve these problems that have uh, exponential algorithms as solutions in sub-exponential time. That also could produce such a disruption, and well, if you wish, a revolution. Uh, but there are these fundamental problems of algorithms and computability that will not be affected by it. If you were in conversation with people, especially those who are really worried about algorithms taking over the world and these potential disruptions, like major disruptions, what would you, your message be to the people who have been writing books or have at least been talking about stuff in the sense that we are going to hit a singularity very soon or something like that? Would you Would you have a message for them? Well, first measure, message maybe would be to relax. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, the singularity, can you store consciousness uh, in a computer or, or can, can you have consciousness, consciousness in machines? Well, that is a very difficult question. Maybe you can. Um, so consciousness is not necessarily tied to, to uh, the brain structure and, and to have this particular organic uh, material that we have as brains. But then I do think there is something to, to our notion of consciousness and, and human existence that is, that is dependent on us being in, embodied people. And we're, we're living in an environment where other objects and interaction with other objects and people matters that is not so easy to replicate in a computer. Of course, you can talk about uh, creating virtual realities that try to do this. But there's a certain limit to, to to how far you can get with this. So singularity, I'm I'm, I'm skeptical about um, whether this can be achieved at least at least in this um, in this short time frame. And also, I also think um, as far as computing disasters and computers taking over the world, um, I'm sometimes reminded of the Y2K problem. I mean, there were all mm-hmm. these horror stories that came about, and everything will uh, will collapse when um, the year 2000 comes around. I don't know whether. I mean, most listeners will probably know this, that in the, in the 1990s, 1980s, uh, computers used two, di- two digits to represent um, a year, inf- year information. And then when the year 2000 came along, 99 would turn to 00. And mm-hmm. well, who knows what happens, right? Sorting of, uh, of data would not work anymore and, and all kinds of horror scenarios were created. But then the, the year 2000 came and nothing bad really happened. So I think we are pretty good at adjusting to to a changing landscape and sure there will always be more more problems that arise with technology with with computing in particular but then well we will find um solutions to those i'm 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 very much reminded now of of, uh, steven pinker's new book enlightenment now that Mm -hmm. i think um is uh is spot on on this i I would agree with him with his view on this or david deutsch's book at the beginning of infinity where he talks about um the importance of explanations and how we can, in principle, how we are able to solve problems. That, if, if you know, if, if you if you realize that, then uh, future is not that frightening anymore. I think. Yeah, well, and I, I think those are optimistic in a good way, in the <laughs> sense that uh, when people are really worried about these uh, dangerous scenarios, there are also a lot of there is evidence, as you said, with Pinker's book and others, of long term looking at patterns and finding, uh, yeah, that humans are quite capable of solving a lot of the problems that we can identify. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
what what do you hope to do in the future? Are you planning on anything in relation to especially popular science again? Was that a good experience for you writing that kind of book? Because I know that you work on technical things, uh, stuff that myself and listeners probably wouldn't have a clue of. Uh, are you thinking of writing more that would be accessible like this book, uh, Once Upon an Algorithm? Yeah, so... Yes. One, one thing I want to do is look more into this question of how much of what we're doing is actually algorithmic and what is not algorithmic. I'm interested in maybe creating a diary or having people create diaries of what they do every day and then classify what they do as either being just execution of an algorithm or, well, being not an algorithm. But even then, if you look at algorithms, there are some parts of algorithms that are not algorithmic. And maybe there are parts of activities that we do not classify as, as algorithmic that are algorithmic. Anyways, by doing that, we, we can get a better understanding of what the impacts of algorithm and computing is on our lives. And it would be interesting to see, um, well, to have data on this. The, the other thing, we're, we're actually using, using this book also in, in teaching. And um, we have uh, taught one section of an introductory computer science class and computer science orientation class using this uh, what we call story programming approach. And we want to see how, uh, how we can expand accessibility to computing um, through this approach. It's, I mean, com computer science and, and uh, computer scientists in particular, they suffer from some, um, well, not necessarily positive stereotypes. And this, well, keeps away people from, from the area that we could benefit from having in the area. So uh, we could certainly benefit from having more uh, a more diverse set of students and then set of computer scientists. But many people are, are turned off by the geeky nature and by the, the um, requirement to code. There's this, there's this emphasis on coding. And even, even the word code and coding, I don't like this very much because it, it seems to indicate kind of hiding something as a secret in order to understand code, you have to decode it. That keeps, uh, I, I know I've start, talked to a lot of students, keeps them away, they're afraid of this. And talking about computing and computer science concepts using stories opens this up to a wider audience. So I'm, I, we will certainly explore this uh, much more. My, my research also is also focused on explainable computing, making programs and, uh, and, and programming languages more explainable, which well, helps to make it more reliable. And that, in, in that sense, these two areas fit, fit together. Yeah, and, and, and in terms of what new book I'm going to write, I, I have not any concrete plans yet hmm. but i could very well envision pursuing this this kind of uh, idea any uh, a little bit further and well maybe maybe writing a book on on how far algorithms go in, in affecting our everyday lives yeah well i mean that sounds like a really great work in combining uh storytelling and computing because as you said they're they seem to be so different but that's much a as much a perception i, I don't think it's so much a reality that mm -hmm. uh they're both based on languages and we, when when you talk about languages as opposed to coding of course it seems a lot more accessible suddenly which so yeah i mean that sounds really great i want to follow up though on that uh that idea of daily sort of algorithms or non-algorithms mm -hmm. how would you how would you look or what would be a, a very basic definition of an algorithm? If you were to take a diary and say, this is, this is not an algorithm, what would be some of the criteria for that? Yeah, so uh, um, basically an algorithm is something that you could write down, right? So you could basically, if you, if you look at an activity and if you could um, write it down and give it to somebody else and that somebody else could replicate it to a certain degree of precision, then you would say, yeah, this is algorithmic. How would you know that it couldn't be written? Because technically, yeah. I mean, couldn't you, if you're writing a diary of what you've done, couldn't someone replicate your day? Well, but suppose part of your day is um, listening to music. So, well, now you have this experience. You sit down for 15 minutes and you listen to a music piece. Well, you could do the same thing, but the 15 minutes in which you sit there and have this music experience, but that by itself is not the experience that you have is not really an algorithm. Well, an algorithm that runs. Well, I mean, maybe there are some algorithms in your brain that that run, but we don't really understand what what exactly is going on there. I mean, maybe neuroscientists can tell you what processes in the brain are active and so on and so forth, but you could not replicate the same experience um, in another person. At least, I, I think that is not possible this uh, at, at this point. And mm -hmm. Or let's say you're playing an instrument, okay? You're playing piano or the guitar. You could say, well, I played this instrument. And then the, the scores for this 
for this piece, well, that certainly can be viewed as an algorithm. But if somebody else is playing this piece, uh, it most certainly will not sound uh, the same way that you played it. And well, maybe their skill level is different. Maybe they can't actually play that. They make mistakes. So the whole experience would be would be different. So it's not so clear cut that activities that look on the surface as being algorithmic are algorithmic all the way down and whether they are not parts of uh, of the activities that are non-algorithmic. And so I, I don't think there's a clear-cut separation. That's why I said that there's, there's clear-cut algorithms. I mean, mm-hmm. getting dressed in the morning. Yeah, I mean, even though there are minor uh, differences in which you put on a shirt or, or your socks or whatever, basically, if you if you tell somebody, well, this is the way you're getting dressed, they they probably could do it. But then if you have to tie a tie, well, there you can see you can see uh, on TV that there are some good results and there are some not so good results. Some of this is, uh, is, 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 is certainly algorithmic, but then some, some parts of this may, may not be so clear cut. Could be maybe in principle described as an algorithm, but well, maybe we don't do it. And um, mm. it, would be, it would require too much, too much detail in order to be, to be of, of interest. Well, it's really interesting, that whole project, because it, it seems to point to something that I think most people are interested in who, who talk about this in any way, philosophers, uh, cultural studies, computer programmers, is that seemingly intangible element that computing almost gets to, but never right. quite seems to get to. And I think that's why some people are really excited about computing, maybe getting further into that realm, while others are are cautious mm-hmm. about that but it's a sort of ph- phenomenological aspect that um that keeps it in a so- sort of tension i think uh with some other versions of philosophy and epistemology but uh, no it sounds like a really cool project yeah I, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me today martin is there anything else that that you wanted to talk about or that you were thinking uh, you, you'd like to mention um not really well um maybe one one more thing that i could mention is that i was often asked um, why, uh, why, why use stories to explain computing and not anything else? And I think the, the stories work so well because, well, first of all, we can find computing in stories, but also uh, we empathize with stories, right? We can really see ourselves doing the same things that the characters in the stories are doing. And that opens up immediately to the metaphors and we immediately can grasp the, uh, the impact of the computing concepts that are being employed. And that, I think, is, I think, a good argument for using stories to do that. And um, it could be, I've, I've, I've been contacted by some people who want to use that approach in, in other areas of engineering and science as well. And uh, I think it's a good idea. And, uh, well, otherwise, I want to thank you for this uh, very nice interview. It was a very great um, uh, experience to talk to you. Yeah, well, like I said, I appreciate it very much. And yeah, Once Upon an Algorithm is an excellent uh, example of how stories can be used to teach seemingly uh, very sort of logical and dry concepts in a way that does create empathy and uh, excitement, I think, for readers. So thank you. Thank you for writing it and thank you for, for speaking to me today. Well, thanks for having me.